0: The Book of Malachi. Uh, This is the last of the Old Testament books. Uh, We have made it all the way through from Genesis to um, Malachi. And looking at this one, it is a it is a good, good book. Um, They all are good, right? Every one of them. There is something about each of these books. Uh, I have learned a lot on this journey. I want to thank you for allowing me to be a part of this journey. Um, I know you're thinking, well, you decided to do it. Um, I think the Lord was uh, teaching us. I have read through the Bible several times. I've read all of the words in all the pages. Um, but going through it like this and having to prepare these, uh, these Wednesday morning um, uh, uh, Bible study uh, material has been an eye-opening thing for me. Because you all are very intimidating, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you all are, are the people that are the wise um, uh, Bible scholars, and so I have to bring my A game every week. And so it's been uh, it's been a lot for me to have to dive in and jump through and, and read through um, and try to try to connect uh, where the Bible is one beautiful piece. Um, I think that as we see starting next year, whenever we get into the New Testament. Um, I'm really excited about it. I'm having to prepare a little bit more for it, so I'll let you know when we're going to start back on that, the date. But um, I'm having to prepare a little more because the the New Testament, I've heard it said before that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So the New Testament reveals things in the Old Testament that were, that were secret or that were mysteries, hidden mysteries. Um, and what, I think what we will see, and, and I hope that as we've gone through this study, maybe you've seen some things that have been revealed to you through the Old Testament, uh, but know that the only reason that's been revealed is because we've used New Testament truths. Uh, it's not because we found something in the Old Testament they didn't see. It's because they didn't know in the Old Testament because they didn't have the full story. We have the full story. Um, which is uh, why we come to this book, and it is uh, incredible. I love the book of Malachi. It has a lot of great truth to us. Before we jump into it, just to let you know, his name, Malachi, means my messenger. That's what his name means, uh, he is, um, which is kind of odd because he doesn't, he's, he's quoted in the New Testament. There's quotes from the book of Malachi. However, each quote in the book in the New Testament from this book doesn't have his name on it. doesn't have his name on it. It's not saying, remember in the book of Malachi, it says this. It doesn't say, uh, here's this quote and here's where it's from. Anytime he's quoted in the New Testament, uh, his name's not even mentioned when he's quoted. And it's, that to me was an interesting fact because I heard it said one time that um, preachers or pastors need to have this, this soul focus. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten because it's not about you. It's about the truth of the gospel. It's about the truth of this book. It, m- knowing me, Anthony, will not get you anywhere. Knowing this book and the person who wrote it will get you where you need to be. And so the goal of every pastor, I believe, should be to preach the gospel, to love the people, and then when you die, just be forgotten. Because our, my life, now, I, I, it would be great to, that my life would inspire somebody, however, I would rather Jesus's life inspire you than mine, because I'm telling you, I've made a lot of mistakes. I am not anywhere near as good as the people, the person in this book that is uh, all connected to uh, that person of Jesus. Malachi, though, um, I think that's kind of an interesting fact. This is where I understand that um, Malachi, again, his name is My Messenger, um, which is also, by the way, the description of the name of angels given. Uh, and so it's when God says, my messenger has sent you this, my messenger, my messenger. And so it's, it's neat to think that the way he wraps up the Old Testament is with a guy that sounds like just a messenger from God. It is not. And, and again, it's almost as if Malachi did his best to hide his name in, in the New Testament. Whenever you see him in the New Testament, like they don't, they don't quote him. Right. He's like, it's, it's because his name doesn't matter. The truth is what matters. The truth is all that matters. The truth is what we can hang our, our lives upon. I love how Malachi does that. Um, I also like how his voice, uh, if you think about it, so and we'll see in just a minute, his voice is a, is a, is a hard cry to the people. It's a, I mean, it is a cry out in the wilderness type of cry. He's the last prophet of the Old Testament. And so this, uh, this no-named, uh, we don't know anything else about him. I don't know where he's from, don't know how old he was, don't know what, don't, I don't know. He's just this guy that shows up seemingly out of nowhere, okay? Because there, there's, no, there's no history of him, there's no, it's just, this is Malachi. He shows up as a messenger from God, gives these deep truths, and then he just disappears. And like, we don't even, we don't even hear about him. We hear of words that he said, but we don't even get to see him again. And here's what I I think is a great contrast: we see the the last prophet of the Old Testament, this guy that shows up, says the truth, and disappears. The first quote prophet of the New Testament is John the Baptist, who shows up, I mean, lays down the truth, and then just is gone. And he, you know, he he's beheaded, but this the cries, the passionate cries, are very similar. I think it's awesome how I love seeing uh, bookends and seeing things that are at the end of a a point of Scripture or a point of time. Uh, We're gonna see the point of time in here is uh, from the the last word of Malachi there's silence for 400 years from God no new fresh revelation no new fresh word and the first person he chooses to uh, to do this and work through and give the word and point to Jesus is this John the Baptist. And so as we, as we see that, the kind of book ends there it 's kind of a neat, neat thought i don 't know maybe that's, maybe that 's just me picking, picking up on something, but anyway uh, it 's pretty cool. I, I like uh, We do know a couple of things about him, though we know around the time that he probably prophesied there 's no date in this book, so there 's no way to know hey, he prophesied at the end of the reign of whatever or beginning of whenever. but we know a couple of things through process of elimination. Um, and there are some scholars that have looked through the timeline of this, and some of them believe, if you remember, so the captivity ended, and, um, you know, Zerubbabel went back to build the temple, right? And um, Haggai and Zechariah were there to encourage him when the building stopped. You got to build it, got to build it, got to build it. The, another remnant came, and Nehemiah was in that remnant. Remember, the walls of Jerusalem were next. So Nehemiah showed up. They built the walls under Nehemiah, and then if you remember, there was a season, we we studied this in the book of Nehemiah, a season when the walls were built, and uh, there were some some reforms and things in place. Nehemiah went back to uh, Persia, and he took a season there. We don't know if it was a year, five years, ten years, we don't know how long it took. But then he came back at the end of Nehemiah, the last chapter of Nehemiah, and everything had kind of gone to ruin a little bit, so he puts in new reforms with this new passion. Some people believe that Malachi was, uh, was was spoken prophesied in that time of Nehemiah's absence, which would make some sense. Uh, but ultimately, there was something I, I don't necessarily fall under that line. Um, and again, it's not dated, so it doesn't it doesn't matter to us much, right? It doesn't it, now for study's sake. I think there's something pretty cool. I think I may have found something. You know how uh, I love in scripture where um, now I can't pr- I, I got, I've got some evidence to back it up, but, uh, you know, it was kind of like this past Sunday when we talked about the inn in Bethlehem and how it was passed down from these generations, and um, there's, a, there's a similar kind of thought to uh, the way that Malachi, uh, when Malachi prophesied, but we, we know a couple of things. We do know, we don't know if it was, you know, in the time Nehemiah was gone. I don't think it was, because there, was a, there had to be a time where uh, worship had become routine, had become ritual, it had, become, it had everything had declined spiritually. It was a spiritually declining place, so bad so that there was some frustration. When when Malachi shows up, there there are some problems in 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 the people of God. There are some problems in is in Israel, um, and so the uh, we do know that it's after we do know it's post the building of the temple, and the and the um, uh, the Levitical religious system. But we know that was always put in place. And we know that it had been long enough that all that had become just a ritual in their life, right? Just a routine. They went to the temple because they were supposed to. They were not passionately seeking God anymore. They were just doing it because that's what they wanted to do, because that's what they needed to do. Um, and so it was a very uh, systematic thing, very routine. Um, one of the best uh, philosophies that I've, that, that I've found and come up and, and studied through um, of when he was uh, prophesying, Uh, goes back to the book of Daniel. If you remember in Daniel chapter 9, we touched on this a little bit whenever we were studying the book of Daniel. Um, There was a prophecy in Daniel 9 about the 70 weeks of years of prophecy. Now, I'm not going to jump into too much math here, but I'm a a math guy. I'm a numbers guy, right? I I like to figure things out. Um, and we know that, that that 70 weeks of years is, um, that means 70 uh, sets of seven years. Okay, 70 sets of seven years. So there's, um, there's several years here. Um, and so we know that it's broken up into three parts primarily because of the way the Holy Spirit has just guided it all. So here's what I, th- I think as I've been kind of breaking this out and studying it. I think that Malachi shows up on the scene after the first set of that 70 weeks of seven years. So <laughs> let me see if I can add this up. So what that means is, so there was, it's in three parts, right? The first part is seven weeks, which equals, if you multiply the, de- the, uh, the years in that, seven, seven weeks would be seven times seven days, okay? So that would be seven, that'd be 49, right? Seven times seven is 49, right? Is that, that that's uh, yeah, that's right, 49. So that would be 49 years. Then there was a second uh, um, set of s- in the 70 weeks, and that was technically uh, 62 weeks. Okay, Now, that's, if you take 62 times 7, that's 434 years. And then there's one week left in this prophecy in Daniel 9. Now, I know that was in Daniel, and we, we all remember all those numbers, right? Uh, so if, we, uh, if you think about this, the, the beginning of this prophecy started in Daniel 9, whenever, um, whenever the, the decree went out for uh, Jerusalem to be rebuilt. So at that time, there was 49 years uh, from the time it was is instituted. So th- that would be enough time. If you rebuild the temple and, um, and you had this uh, great, glorious reign, then all those people would have, uh, you know, it takes about 40 years or so for a generation in Scripture to, to move out and a new generation to come in. I don't know if you know this, but it doesn't take more than a generation to start declining spiritual health. It just doesn't. Uh, I, I am very, very passionate. I was talking to a friend uh, a couple of weeks ago. I'm very passionate that my, my, my father was a very spiritual man. I, could not, I couldn't pull anything past him. And I don't mean like trying to do something dumb. I mean, I would go to him with some complaint and he would say, man, how is the Lord taking care of you now? And I'm like, dad, I just want to complain a little bit, right? And he's like, no, this is the Lord's purpose in you to sanctify you, to make you holy. So you better pay attention to what the Lord's doing. And I'm like, dad, I'm just, I'm sick right now. And he's like, I know. He said, can you imagine how much the Lord trusts you in your faith walk to be able to make you sick at this time so that you can learn something? And I'm like, dad, gosh, calm down, right? But I, I'm, I've, part of my passionate walk is I don't want the the... Uh, the, the legacy of my family to, to decline spiritually. I don't. Most of the time, what you see is the first generation of believers, the first generation of God followers, has deep convictions. The second generation of uh, those followers, so the kids of that generation, typically move from conviction to, yeah, I believe that, but they're not convicted by it. And then typically, the next generation, those beliefs turn into opinions, and you can sit and you can say, well, that's a, lot. That's, a, that's a lot of speculation. I'll show you the history of our country. I will, I will walk you through generation after generation after generation, and then I'll turn on the news and show you. We have no convictions left. The church has no convictions left. I can show you the church that, in America and show you the church has no conviction left. I was, I was listening to a preacher uh, just a couple of days ago who was talking about, he said, he said I'll tell you the, my most frustrating thing about the church he said, we all come in here and we all have different beliefs and we think we're in the same group. He said, we're not. He said, we're not. He said, I hold to these convictions and you don't. He said, we are not in fellowship with one another. And I, I thought, well, that's a little bit. I, I don't think I could get away with saying that on Sunday. Right. But um, I've not been here long enough. Give me some time and we'll then we'll really jump in there. But as I, as I think about it, so if each generation loses a little bit of that of that conviction, typically, now it doesn't have to. I'm not saying that's the rule. In my house, I hope and pray it's not the rule. I hope my kids are even more convicted about the Word of God than I am. I hope they get a, a deeper grasp of His love and His holiness and all that. My, that's my prayer. I, I want my kids to be Far greater spiritually than I am, so I know that's not letting them make their own opinions about what the Bible says is yes or no. But as we think about this, so this first forty-nine years, um, I think after that, that's about a generation and a half, and so you're kind of declining a little bit, and then that would set the tone for if he prophesied then, and the and the Bible and the Old Testament closes, that would give four hundred and thirty-four years until Christ was rejected. Because there was four hundred years of silence, Jesus was born right thirty three years so four hundred and thirty three years and then in that four hundred and thirty fourth year after Jesus was born because the nine months because the first week first uh, opening was to John the Baptist to Zechariah uh, in the temple um, whenever he was doing his uh, his priestly duties and then that would mean in the year four hundred and thirty four from here that is when Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people publicly and so uh, that's, my, that's my opinion, that's my thought, um, and then there's also then the, the final seven years, the final week of that prophecy, which is going to be the consummation of all things, which again, the church age kind of is in that valley, right? We talked about the peaks, and so that was kind of the way um, that we see this. You'll see that again in the book of Malachi, for instance, um, where you see the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ almost intertwined, one right after the other. Again, there's a church age that, they, that the, the Old Testament prophets didn't seem to see. It was a hidden age that was, um, I think, kind of a cool thing for us to be living in a hidden age. Um, so anyway, all that to say, uh, does it matter when Malachi prophesied? yeah and no, like we just need to know this is truth okay it, whenever he said it it 's still truth it 's still truth today. we can learn from it today. We are going to see a little bit of context whenever we jump in here, um, so all that to say, uh, the prophecy was late enough here 's what we do absolutely know. the prophecy was late enough for there to be decline in the spiritual health of the people, okay uh, whether it was forty nine years or or not it was it was long enough for decline to happen spiritually um, and so uh, the the Haggai had, had built the, the passionate cry of him, was now gone. Uh, Zechariah, asking people to turn their hearts back to God, was over. Uh, Nehemiah and his passionate reforms had been gone. And so now here we are, uh, generation coming and on, and we see there were some major, major issues that Malachi dealt with. Um, his book, uh, giving the last, uh, Being the Last of the Old Testament, is a, gives us a couple of things. I, I think that this survey, part of the reason I like this survey so much is we have a... Um, uh, I've been able to see the Bible again from this other perspective. And if you look at the way this, this book ends, I, I'm not going to lie to you, this book ends with a curse. This, Malachi ends with a curse, and it is very, very sobering. It's a curse from God. It says, I will strike the, the lamb with a curse if you don't do this. And so uh, if you look at this Old Testament as a whole, the book of Genesis is a book of blessing. And then the book of Malachi is a book with a curse at the end. It's almost like this, this, this Bible has taken me through an emotional roller coaster. I don't know about anybody else, but we see all these great victories. We see all these great wins. We see all these great things. And then we see this just constant up and down of God's people. And, it's, it's not, and none, none of the ups and downs are God's fault. Okay, all the downs are human's fault. God, was, God has never, he never set out to say, I want you to rebel against me. It's not what God wanted to do. He wanted the people to be in, in harmony with him. And we're going to see something really cool in just a minute with that. Um, the, the minor prophets, so book, the, the Bible begins with this blessing, ends with this curse. You know, God created the world, it's beautiful, this, and he blessed it and he said it was good. And then, the end of the Old Testament, there is a curse coming from this same God, He's the same God throughout the whole thing. The um, Minor Prophets, uh, this was the last of the Minor Prophets. Minor Prophets lasted about 400 years. That's a time span of the Minor Prophets. So you had this period of about 400 years. Uh, Malachi brought that to an end, and then he ushered in a new time of silence for 400 years. And so he, his book is, is valuable to us in multiple reasons, but uh, he, entered it, he ushers in this new age of God not speaking to his people, not giving a new fresh revelation. Now, I, I personally believe if you look at history through those 400 years, God was still active because God is not just hands-off. He was still active, but he was not giving any fresh word, no fresh uh, uh, um, uh, prophecy, no fresh wind, nothing like that. Um, so there's four chapters in this book. Now we're going to jump into it. Uh, there, we're going to break it up into two parts. The two parts I am uh, titling, The Present Sins and the future saints. That's what I'm going to do. That's got a little bit of a alliteration sort of in it. Um, so the first two chapters are the present sins, the sins that were going on in Israel uh, in that day, in that time. And so uh, again, we got to remember that this was written to people in a, in a time, right? And then we learn and mine out the spiritual truths that we apply to our lives today. So the spiritual uh, uh, implications, uh, we have to understand the time and date, and or not necessarily the date, but the time and the people and what was going on uh, in, that, in that season. So uh, we find a lot of sins listed here in Malachi, and I've tried my best to list them out um, in the first two chapters. Um, so I just want to kind of walk through them. The first thing we see in, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, uh, we see that they denied God's love. That was the first sin Listed in Malachi. Um, God says that he loves them and they say this, how? How do you love us? Now, if I were to tell my daughters, I love you, and their denial of that is, what? How is that true? I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to say, I'm going to let you count the ways. I'm going to let you sit and think about this one for a minute because I have done nothing but show you love all my life, right? God is saying, I have done nothing but show you love. How terrible of a response is that? Um, God gives them an answer. God's answer to them is he points to Jacob and Esau or Israel and Edom. If you remember this, uh, this kind of battle, uh, he says that he loved Jacob, and um, that love to Jacob wasn't deserved, by the way. That was a full God love. Jacob deceived. Jacob did things that were not uh, lovable actions, right? And God says, I chose to love him undeservedly. And Edom, if you remember Esau, the people of Esau, the Edomites, um, he, God hated them. He, he did a lot to them that was very clear. And the reason was because the Edomites, if you remember throughout some of this study, whenever Babylon came in and took Judah, remember the Edomites all celebrated and did everything they could to help Babylon to do that. They hated Israel. They hated the people of God. And so they, they did all that. And then God used Babylon to take Edom out. And Edom, from that moment, Edom has never risen to the amount of power that they had then. God says, I'm going to take you down. I'm going to show you. And they deserve the punishment that they got. And God, so God's telling the people of Israel, I loved you when you didn't deserve it. I've punished those who did deserve it. And for you, I could have punished you, but I didn't. I love you. I've I've corrected you. I've disciplined you. The reason I discipline my children is not because I don't love them. It's because I do love them, right? I want them to be, uh, have a better life. So I'm going to correct them in the ways they can. Um, so uh, we know that these... And here's the thing. These people, the people of Israel, had just been, over, over the series of probably a generation and a half, maybe two generations, have just been rescued from captivity, reinstituted as a, as a nation again, and they have been protected by God. And they're saying in this, in this first five verses, they say, prove, prove to us you love us. What? I, I mean, how far, God could have said, I just, I just set you free. I just made you a nation again when you didn't deserve it. And I'm protecting you from all the enemies around you. And you're telling me to prove to you? I, lo- I, I did prove my love to you. I proved my love to you in that while you were still sinners, I came and rescued you. That sound familiar? Let's reveal it in the New Testament, right? We're not there yet. Uh, so he, uh, he he tells them that. So the first sin of them is they denied God's love. The second one is found in chapter one, verse number six, uh, and it says, "A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then, if then I a father, I am a father. Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear?" says the Lord of Hosts. You, O priest, you despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? The, the second uh, uh, major sin is they despised his name. And this is where is awesome, 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 awesome. This is the first instance we see God naming himself as father. I, I want you to think about this. Throughout all the Old Testament, he saves this name until the very last. He saves, we see him as holy, as Jehovah, as as all of the Elohim, as all these creator, God, powerful, majestic, holy, all, all these names. And yet he saves the best one for last. He says, I am your father, and you have, where is my honor? You despise my name. You're throwing my name around like it doesn't matter. You are, you are, you are misusing and mistreating my name. Uh, he waits till the close of the Old Testament to refer his, uh, his name of father, um, all the the and I want you to think about that all the great writing prophets all of the all of the 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 non-writing prophets all of the priests they they weren't mentioning him as father that was a that was a a different title and yet he says right here at the close of the Old Testament I am a father and you have not shown me that your your love for my name and how how uh, respectful you should be of my name uh, the next passage in, in verses 7 through 14, we see that they were defiling his altar. Uh, they were bringing things to the altar that to, to burn as a sacrifice that were unfitting. Things that should have been thrown away. Things that should have been trash. In fact, he even says in there, you would never have taken this to a, a, a king or a governor. You would never have taken this as a gift to someone on earth. Why do you think you're going to bring it to me? why is that even the case? Why are you doing that? Uh, it's, it kind of reminds me of, um, and I'm going to say this, this is going to make this like way less intense, but just a practical thing for us today to know. Um, we, I was at a church one time where people would donate uh, toys to the kids ministry. They would donate toys, which is it's fine. I have, have no problem donating toys. Just donate. don't donate toys that should throw in the garbage, right? Um, and and what, what was happening is somebody would say, oh, I'm done with this pack and play so the nursery can have it. Well, so whenever I first got to this church, I saw this. Uh, I walked in. I see this pack and play that's like should have been in the garbage. I'm like, man, how long has this been here? And they're like, oh, somebody donated it to us a month ago. And I was like, what are our kids doing in here? Because this thing is, is a mess. And it had like, a, had like a pole sticking out of the side of it. had an in, and, and I thought, this seems dangerous to me. And they were like, no, no, no. I look it up. That specific um, uh, pack and play had been had been recalled, and it had been uh, um, expired, and it's you know certain like codes or whatever in the thing. And I was like, if you wouldn't have your kid, would you would you let your grandkids sleep in this thing? No, you wouldn't, because it looks like a hazard. There's rust all over it. Some kid's gonna bite a hold of it, and it's gonna be awful. And so it was. Or the mentality was, we we won't use this anymore, but the church can have it. And it's, this, it's, not this, it's much deeper than that in this book, but it's the same mentality, right? I, this isn't good enough for me. It's not good enough. You would not go and, and wrap that up and give it to someone that you care about because it's not worth it. It should be thrown in the garbage. That's what God is saying to his people. He says, you brought these sacrifices that should go to the trash. And yet you're bringing them here to me thinking, I want them. I want your best. I do not want uh, what's defiling my altar. And then we see in chapter 2, uh, the first nine verses specifically, uh, they disobeyed God's laws. Uh, here's where um, uh, this is a, a heavy, heavy um, uh, uh, accusation uh, of God to these people. So he, he tells the priests, he says, you have taken my beautiful law and you've corrupted it with man's eyes. What you've done is you've added all these things to it. Now, if you, if you look through Jewish history especially through these uh, 400, quote, silent years of God, what you'll find is it just gets worse and worse and worse. So what they would do is they would take the law of God, keep the Sabbath holy, then they would add a bunch of things to it, right? They would add multiple laws to it. If you read Jewish documents much, which I'm I'm assuming most of us aren't like sitting at home opening up the the Talmud and, and reading it, but if you see how the, the progression of those Jewish documents grew, they went to this first document called the Mizpah, then they went to the, uh, 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 another one that I can't pronounce, and then to the Talmud. And what they would do is they would add to the law specific um, uh, what they considered guardrails to keep you holy. What they were doing was saying, you've got to work, and this is how you work, in order to make God happy. Where God was saying, I just said, keep the Sabbath day holy. I did not say you could carry half an orange. That's not what I was you've made this now you've made the law more of a burden, and the law is supposed to show you how you are to be holy. It's not supposed to be a more of a burden on you. The law reveals your need for grace, is what it reveals. It reveals your need that you you can't you can't come under the law and, and win. You're gonna lose to the law every time because you're sinful. And so he's telling the priest, he's like, You have you have done this, you've tried to make it manageable. You've tried to put, and what what you've done is you you've put people under the curse of the law. So they tried to make God's law something that you could manage. You may not be able to understand uh, keep the Sabbath holy. So here's how we're going to tell you exactly how to do that. And God's like, half an orange, really? Like this is this is your way to manage keeping the Sabbath holy? Can you imagine having to remember hundreds of laws in order to keep one thing the right way? And God's like, "Uh, it's a heart issue. This is not an action issue. This is a heart issue. Your heart will lead your actions. And so it got so bad. If you remember, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks whenever we get into the New Testament, the majority of Jesus' ministry, when he was dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees, was rebuking all of the laws they had put in place and put under the burden of, put people under the burden of. That Jesus was rebuking them most of all throughout his whole ministry. And it starts with where we find it right here in Malachi. God says, how dare you uh, take my law and disobey it and then start to manipulate it. Um, then we see after uh, for verses ten through thirteen in chapter two, um, they worshipped falsely, and here's how they did it: they married foreign women. Now we've seen this all throughout the Old Testament, right? They they would go and marry foreign women, and they would take that worship, and they would worship those false gods of the idolatrous women. Now. We think, well, that's terrible. That's awful. Um, Even verse number 12, I want to read verse number 12 just so that you can hear how intense God is about this. Chapter 2, verse 12 says this, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob and any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So he's saying, you've married these idolatrous women. Their, Their religious views and their religious lives have seeped in. And now you're going to offer something to God? How dare you! I will cut you off. I'll cut you right out of it. It is a serious offense. God says, "Do not do this." And you say, "Wow, this is a—that's uh, a pretty, pretty heavy, heavy word." But listen, it gets even worse. Uh, verse number fourteen through sixteen uh, say how they did it. In order to marry adult uh, uh, these idolatrous women, women, they divorced their own wives. They left their own wives to go and seek after these foreign women and bring in their religious views. I'm talking, this is a deep dive into, into defiling God's name. This is, this, they, are, they are trying their best in, in, in their own actions to take away everything God has given them. They've gone and started marrying these women, and they've divorced their own wives. Listen to the way God explains it in verses 14 through 16. It says that their altars are being drenched with tears of the women who have been deserted. That's, can you imagine God in heaven seeing his people and seeing these women? I, I'm telling you, there's, a, there's a, a soft spot, I believe, in, in, in human, humankind. In, can, can you imagine God from heaven looking in and seeing a woman whose the husband has just left her, gone chased after some foreign wife, that is, that is doing idolatrous things that are not of God, and this woman coming to the altar of God, weeping. Crying, man! If I'm, if i if I'm, if I'm God, I'm, I'm smoting that man wherever he's at. Like you're not, you're not gonna be faithful to your wife. This is one of the strongest places in all of Scripture about divorce, about how this in in, in all of Scripture. I, I cannot imagine a, a more strongly worded piece of Scripture about this. Because um, it, I'm just gonna read the verses 14 through 16 because this one speaks heavy, and I'm I'm gonna always be. All about this one, um, verse verse thirteen. says, and second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepted it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness before you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit under uh, in their union? And what was the one God seeking? God's godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirit and let, no, uh, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Um, God is very clear here. Do not if this woman has done this woman has been your companion for life, this is the one you have un, you have united to this is the one that has and, and the purpose was to bring godly offspring. The whole purpose was so that the the two of you became one under the covenant of God under his law and his ways, and so you 're in god 's family, so your offspring should be born under that that covenant of God. Your offspring should be born under the spirit of your union is what God is saying. And he's like, and, you all, and your husbands are divorcing your wives? Like, this is not okay. I, I'm, I will clothe myself with violence. This is a serious, serious offense. It's heavy. Um, and so then verse number 17, um, as we c- continue moving on to the continued uh, uh, pre- present sins, um, they also slandered him with words in verse 17 of chapter 2. Um, and it is a... Uh, uh, they ask... Here, here's basically the question they ask. How can prosperity happen to bad people? People that aren't of God are getting wealthy, and we are over here struggling. That's, that's wrong. And he, they're basically saying, God, how can you do that? They're slandering Him. They are saying to Him... It says, verse number 17, You have wearied um, uh, the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? They're going to God and they're saying, oh, well, this guy's got a bigger boat than I do. This guy's got a nicer house than I do. And he doesn't doesn't serve the Lord. I guess God likes him more than he likes me. Are we judging from the outside? Oh my goodness. Like, let's go back to Samuel and let's see what Samuel says. The Lord judges the heart, not not the outward appearance. It's not about what this world has offered people. It's about what God has offered us. We have a joy from within. We have something so much greater, so much more beautiful. And then we see um, in uh, the second part of this into chapter 3, the future saints. But before we get there, um, we see a couple of other uh, pieces that are still going on currently. Uh, The first six verses of chapter 3, we see that the action of the people currently are ungodly. Um, and uh, we, but we see this in a future tense, right? So these first six verses uh, give the, the picture of Jesus coming. I want to read this it Says, behold, uh, verse number one, I send my messenger as he, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of his covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Um, and then it says, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand before him when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fueler's, uh, like fuller's soap. So here's where uh, this is a, another picture of, of you've got to understand prophecy a little bit. So in, in the first uh, couple verses there, you see that he's talking about Jesus' first coming. We know he's talking about John the Baptist, the messenger that's coming, right? That's, that's the messenger that's coming. And we see this picture of this first coming of Jesus. Then he talks about in the next verse, him coming like a refiner's fire, okay? That's the second coming. So the first coming, he shows up. Jesus shows up. uh, There's there's a messenger before him. Hey, this is the one. Don't miss it. He comes in to the temple. He changes things. he's, he's, He's the God of glory, shows up the Messiah. Then when he comes back the next time, he's coming back to refine everything out. So he is going to set fire to everything to make sure that only the pure come out. And so a refiner is the the judging part of God, whereas this first coming. So we see this kind of intertwined, which again, has happened a lot of times in the prophets. We see um, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And we see this, man, he's coming and it's going to be this beautiful thing. And then he's coming and it's this like fire that's going to purify everything. So it's this powerful uh, picture kind of coming together. Um, We see in uh, the next few verses, in verses uh, 7 through 12, we also find um, in, uh, in verses 7 through 12 now, we, we look into uh, their, act- their attitude. So first off, we see the actions of the people. And you can kind of see as a refiner, refiner purifies, um, he will purify the sons. He will purify people uh, because their actions are not aligned with God. That's the second coming of Christ. He's going to purify their actions. Then we see um, in, in verses 7 through 12, their attitude, the way they think, the way they act. And here's where the place in Scripture about tithing shows up. Um, this is a, uh, it's, it, my little subtitle in my Bible says robbing God. Um, this is the place in scripture where it talks about bringing your tithe. If you don't, you're robbing God. Um, and it's, it's true. This is a true statement. Uh, but let's not forget something. I, I want to put us in context because I've heard a lot of pastors get up and, and kind of yell this to their churches, right? And they're like, if you're not tithing, you're robbing God. If you're not tithing, you're robbing God. Um, I've made a statement in passing um, that uh, I heard a statement one time, and I, I, uh, it just set in my mind, some people are driving stolen cars because you used your money you were supposed to give to the Lord, you robbed him, and you bought your car with it, right? And that's a, um, uh, that, it was a, it was one of the shocking statements, and, um, but if, if you, if you mine it out, if you, if you robbed God to buy something for you, then you have, you have stolen whatever you bought for yourself, because it was, it be, should have belonged to God, that money. And but here's what I want us to see. I, I don't want to, to heart, you know, I don't think um, guilting people is going to, to change hearts. I don't. I think that revealing truth does change hearts. Truth sets us free, not shame. Shame doesn't set us free. Truth sets us free. So I, I want us to think about this for just a second. So far, here's what's happened in the, in the culture. If we go back to Malachi's time, we see the decline of the temple, we see the decline of worship, we see the decline of harvest, we see the decline of all that. We, we know that from in uh, Haggai and Zechariah, how the decline had started, um, and so the harvests were, were low. The families were all being broken apart, okay? The, uh, the, the struggles were happening. The national economy was in total disaster. Um, which means in every aspect of their life, they were becoming poorer. They had less at harvest. They had less in their economy. They had less in their own families. They were getting divorces, so their children were even suffering. Everybody was suffering. They were getting poorer and poorer and poorer. And what do we do when we get poorer? We have to determine where our finances go, where our money goes, where our resources go, right? So let's just, let's just be real right here. So let's say I have $100, okay? Let's say I've made $100 for the last uh, five straight weeks. Every week I've made $100. That means in five weeks, I have $500. Well, then let's say in week six, I only, have, I only make $75. Then I only make $60 the next week. Then I only make $50. And then from there on, I only make $50. Now, I was functioning on $100 a week, right? So now, uh, uh, three, three months later, I'm only, I'm only making $50 a week. So something has to change, right? I can't keep living a $100 lifestyle. Now, if, if you're in America, you just go borrow more, right? But that's, that's a sin too. We could talk about that. But as you, So here's what you do. You have to cut things out, right? You, you have to. So what's typically the easiest things to cut out? Well, what you don't eat and what you don't uh, drink, and what you don't need to survive, right? So you cut out your entertainment, you cut out your, your extra things. What the people of Malachi were doing, this is the spiritual truth we have to understand, is times were getting hard, and so they said it's not necessary, it's not essential for the temple to receive the money. It's essential for me to get mine, It's not essential for me to be faithful to what God has. Now that changes our perspective in this. Now I'm not just thinking I'm robbing God. Now I'm thinking it's not just that I'm robbing him. It's that I'm choosing me over him. I'm choosing what's essential in my life because I have, yes, times get hard. The harder times get, the more I have found that God is faithful. The harder it gets, the more I find God's faithful. If I don't find that God's faithful, then I'm doing something wrong because I'm not trusting him with it. God's saying this is not an issue of, of him needing money. It's an issue of, of the finances. Is, um, and, and, and again, he's putting all this together for the people, saying this. The reason times are hard is because you've been robbing me. I, I'm, I've got, I, I'm, in, I'm in heaven ready to pour out blessings. That's what he says right here. He says, he said, test me, try me. You want the harvest to get better? Then you, you put your heart back to me. Because God controls the harvest. You don't control the harvest. I don't control the harvest. This whole time, in all the culture, they were realizing they were trying to sow their own seed and trying to reap their own reward, and God was saying, listen, you can put as much seed in the ground. I can tell the ground to stop. I can make the seeds all die. I have the power and authority to do that. Why would God do that? I don't understand. Well, because God's saying, my whole goal is to get you back into communication with me. My whole goal is for people to connect with me. That's what God's saying. That's where He's been. That's what He's doing. I think it's uh, it's 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 very very uh, uh, beautiful that God wouldn't just say, "Oh, well, just keep what you have. Just keep what you have." You know, the Bible says, "Where your heart is, there your treasure will be." Also, wherever your heart is, your treasure will be there. Your resources will be there. And God's saying, "Your heart is not with Me, and I can prove it." Here's what's here's what's again. We look at this scripture. Over and over and over again, God's people are saying, prove it, God. Prove it, God. Prove it, God. And God turns it right here and says, now you prove it. You prove it. I'm not, I, I've proven myself. You've not proven yourself. What's the easiest way to prove it? By saying, here's what I have in my hands right now. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to prove to you. I, I'm, no, I'm no longer going to rob from you. I'm no longer, gonna... they were holding, and, and what's, what's even crazier is it says that they have been, uh, in your tithes and, and, and contributions, they were, they were holding this back. I don't know for sure. I, I've done a lot of, of study and research through this. And um, there is a, 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 a thought out there that they were not just robbing God, but they were holding it as a safety fund for themselves. They were saying, I'm going to hold it just in case I need it. And God's saying, I, I've, why are you withholding this from me? Why, why, you think you can do more with this than I can? Is this, is this a real thing? I've heard in churches, which I don't know, it, it, that, that people will hold their tithes because something's not going the way they want. And, and I, I, I could point you to this. Listen to this. Uh, how, um, verse number 8, how, how will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? By saying um, And by you saying, how have, our, have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby uh, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the vine in your fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. He says, he says, there, you, know why, you know why there's animals coming and eating all your stuff? Because I'm sending them there. That's what I'm doing. Because you say that because it's not the way you want it, because times are hard, so you're going to protect yourself, I can protect you better than you can protect yourself. So, trust me. And then he says uh, in verses 13 through 15 that their arguments are ungodly. Listen to the way they, they, they were saying. Um, here's where, and again every single one of these has seemed to build on one another, right? So they were, uh, let's just go back to the the women. They were, they were marrying idolatrous idolatrous women. It gets worse. They were divorcing their own wives to do it, right? Then, then we see they're, um, they're, they're withholding their money. Why? Well, because they had already, they had said God seems to bless the people that aren't following him, right? It's, we saw that they were saying, God, you're, you're, they were accusing God of, 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 benefiting the world more than they were, more than he was benefiting his people. And then God says, well, you've been robbing me. You've been holding back your tithe and your contribution to the work of God. You thought it wasn't necessary. You thought what was only necessary was what sustains your life. And I'm telling you, I sustain your life. Man doesn't live on bread alone. And so he's, he's going on. And then we see in verses 13 through 15 that they say to God, serving you has no financial benefit. <coughs> That's another. They are stacking on these sins. They are like, this is not worth it. This we're, serving you was not. Uh, it's not pr- proven to be profitable. Um, it says in verse fourteen, you have, you say it's vain to serve God. What is it? The profit of of. Um, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking, as in mourning, before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is when they say, that the people that are against God, not only are they getting richer, but they don't seem to be getting any of this punishment that God's giving out. This is not fair. It's not fair. The cry of God's people is, Listen, yeah, we've gone and, and, and chased after foreign women. Yeah, we've let their worship sink in. Yeah, we divorced our own wives. But we see that, that the foreign the foreign things isn't, aren't so bad. They seem to be getting financially prosperous. You seem to be blessing them. And so then they're like, so we're not going to give to the worship of God anymore. We're not going to give to the work of God anymore. We're going to keep it for ourselves. And God the whole time is saying, I'm going to continue to make your life harder and harder and harder until you realize it's not about what the world can offer you. It's about what I offer you. And they, they continue to turn over and over and over again. And the, the sins just keep stacking on each other. God says, and they even say, we're, we're telling you, you, it looks like serving you is, is a poor man's job. We're not going to go about this path anymore. We're, be, we're poor right now because we've served you. And God's saying, you haven't been serving me. You've been withholding things from me. You've, not been, you've been declining. Your worship is, is, is a joke. You're, you're coming in here bringing me trash, thinking I want this. I am telling you, this is a clear-cut message that God says, it is time to understand I'm God, you're not. So let's figure this out. Then uh, we see that, God, that Malachi, in this passage, uh, from here, from verse 16 on through uh, chapter 4, uh, we see he turns to the people, the, the future, the saints that will fear the Lord. Um, and so he turns attention to God's people now. Um, he says in, verse, in these first uh, uh, verses, three, chapter 3, 16, through, verses, uh, through chapter 4, uh, we see he talks about these righteous people. And I, I, wanna, I broke this up into kind of each verse, each little section. Chapter 3, verse 16, he says that the righteous will be remembered. God talks about a book, talks about writing in a book. I love how God writes in a book. There's several places in Scripture where God just loves books. Uh, he he loves to write in books. Um, he keeps them. He writes them. And uh, he in verse sixteen it says, "Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name." I'm so thankful. I'm in a book that is in heaven that God wrote my name in. But this is a, a another place where we see, man, God's paying attention. Do right. He's, he's watching and he's recording. Do right to him. Do right for him. Do right about him. Then they see uh, in verse 17 that the righteous will be rewarded. It says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I, wake, when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. This is one of those beautiful, beautiful places in Scripture that I think everybody should highlight Um, or underline, or star, or whatever, because in 317, he uses a word here. The word in my script, my translation says, um, uh, treasured possession. Some may say jewels, some may say treasure, um, depending on what what translation you use, how the translator translated that word. But here's what I want you to know. The very first time, that, that Hebrew word, the very first time it was ever used in the scripture was back in Exodus. Now, I I love context. I love, I don't know why this is the word that showed up in Malachi's heart on his pen as he was writing it out, but the very first time that word was used in the Old Testament was in Exodus chapter 19, verse number 5. And Exodus 19, 5, we see that word pop up. Now let me tell you how, when that word popped up. It's a matter of when, not how. So when it popped up, this jewel, this treasured possession, this beautiful treasure, it popped up. Right after they had been set free by the... Listen, this, oh, this is another good one. This is a, a preacher thing. I wanted to preach this on Sunday because this is just good. In Exodus nineteen five, the people of God had just been set free by the blood of the Lamb. They had just come through the water of this, the, the, out of captivity, out of slavery. The blood of the Lamb saved them from, from, from that. So then they come through the water, and then they are brought to, um, to this place... Where they are about to be, listen, they are about to be gathered around the tabernacle in the presence of God. And that's when he uses this word that my people are a precious treasure. So when Malachi says this, I, I'm, I'm looking at this as a, as a pastor, I'm looking at this as a, a prophecy lover, I'm looking at this as a, as a uh, Bible student, and I'm seeing he uses the same word that God used. And the first time he used it, he said, listen, you've been bought by the blood, you've come through the water, the water of death. You've come through uh, and and now you are gathered and you're gathering around what? The presence of God himself. Malachi says in 317, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. I am going to, I'm going to make up my treasured possession. The day when I do that, I'll spare them as a man who, who loves his son and spares his son. Oh, to be his, to be a child of God himself as a father would a son. He says it again, and we see him as a father again. I love Malachi. It's so good. Then verse 18, the righteous are going to be recognized. It says, then once more you shall see distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who doesn't serve him. He says, We're going to, I'm going to separate this person, the righteous, from the wicked. I'm going to separate them. And then chapter 4, we see uh, the first three verses, the righteous will be rescued. Um, as you see now, this, becomes, this goes into the great day of the Lord. There is a, a, a um, view that we're continuing down the, the timeline of history, right? So as Malachi continues, it gets further and further out. This is the great day of the Lord. Um, and uh, he says he will make an end to the ungodly. You know, he says in these first three verses, it may look like to you that the world is flourishing now, right? Y'all have been complaining that all those who don't serve the Lord are getting rich may look like they're winning now, but there's a day coming where I'm stamping them out. They're not going to make it anymore. And he says they are, they're going to be separated. They're going to, the righteous ones will be rescued. Those who are not righteous are going to be destroyed. And in the last three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6, the righteous will be revived. This is a good one. Uh, I'm going to read these, four ver- these three verses just because I want to. Um, last three verses, before the Old Testament closes, before 400 years of silence from God, this is how uh, Malachi, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words down. It says, verse number four, Remember the law of my servant Moses. Remember that. Really, Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Horeb for all of Israel. So the first thing he does he points back to Moses and the law. Okay? Then verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. He goes from, from the law to the prophets. Right? Elijah's a prophet. Now, we know this is a, point, a picture to the person John the Baptist. Because it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So here's what, here's what Malachi's doing. He takes us back to the law. Then he says, So remember the law. Then remember the prophet and the age of the prophets. He's about, to, he's about to end the book. This is about to be, oh, this, the Old Testament is about to be closed for, for 400 years. God will not speak again. Then he says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Or some scriptures, some translations render that, I will strike the land with a curse. And you know in um he goes from from Moses the law to the prophets, which are actually pointing us to the coming of Jesus, and we see uh swiftly coming to the end of the age um, and I believe that whenever he does this now if you are a if you're a Jewish scholar, what you know is in 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 bible times uh they would they would go and read these there's there's three different um, prophets that end in a, in a negative, sombering, cursive, curse kind of, uh, of tone. What they would do in Jewish culture, whenever they would read this out loud, they would read it like this. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, uh, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then they would close. They would read the scripture because they had to read all of it. Then they'd go back and read the the verse above it. So they ended on a better note because they didn't want to end their service with a curse. They wanted to be like, and remember, guys, look for Elijah. Look for Elijah. That's what we need. As we leave today, be sure you look for Elijah. They don't want to say God's cursing us. That's a bad thing. This is going to be hard. Rather, they wanted to leave on a positive note, um, which is another reason why I think that... uh, the church has it, has it uh, maybe backwards a little bit. Sometimes we need to leave with our hearts a little bit convicted. Sometimes we need to leave with some of that, oh, this God is serious. The way Malachi ends, I like to think of it this way. The way Malachi ends is with a word of this. It's a choice. It's either ruin or it's revival. One of the two. You're either going to sell out to Jesus or you're going to sell out to the world. You're either going to be bought by the blood of the Lamb. You're going to be rescued, brought through the water into this wilderness place, but you're facing the presence of God. Or you're going to be, there's going to be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Are you going to be a part of the righteous or are you going to be a part of the wicked? Now, something beautiful that we'll talk about in the New Testament is um, we can be found righteous because of the righteousness that's been impugned to us, that's been given to us. We didn't earn it. We we didn't earn this righteousness. But there's a day coming when when God will separate the wicked from the righteous. And I'm on the righteous side, not because of anything Anthony did. Anthony couldn't do it. I couldn't get there. But I'm going to choose revival. I'm going to choose that. I'm going to let the Lord work in my life. And if that means I'm not going to rob him, I'm not going to rob him. If that means I'm going to be faithful and honor my wife, I'm going to be faithful and honor my wife. If that means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow his statutes and ways to the best of my absolute ability, I'm going to do that. But ultimately, I couldn't fulfill the law or the prophets as he wraps up this book. But the next page tells us the genealogy of a man who could fulfill the law and the prophets. The priest, king, king Jesus. I hope that you glean something from the book of Malachi today. Let's pray.